Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Lara Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is November 21st, 2022, and it is my pleasure to have with me world-famous documentary filmmaker, Julia Basha. Julia is a yes, sorry. Julia is a Peabody and Guggenheim award-winning filmmaker. I've never had an award-winning filmmaker on here before. That's very exciting. She is a media strategist and she is the creative director at Just Vision, an organization that fills a gap on Israel-Palestine through independent storytelling, strategic audience engagement. And they are, by the way, a grantee of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. We're very proud to support their work. Uh, Julia, uh, most people may be familiar with her through her films. She started her career in Cairo, where she wrote and directed the 2004 film Control Room, which became one of the highest grossing political documentaries of all time and introduced the world to the inner workings of the Al Jazeera satellite channel. She subsequently moved to Jerusalem, where in, let's see, is that right? No. I got these out of order. In 2006, yeah, she co-directed and wrote in Counterpoint, which followed Palestinians and Israelis who risked their lives and public standing to promote an end to occupation and the conflict. Uh, in 2009, she directed and produced the critically acclaimed Budrus, uh, which chronicled the story of a Palestinian community organizer united, who united Palestinian factions and Israelis to save his village from destruction by Israel's separation barrier. In 2012, she directed and produced the award-winning documentary, My Neighborhood, which follows a Palestinian teenager struggling to reclaim his home in East Jerusalem from Israeli settlers. Uh, we're almost done here. In 2017, she directed Nela and the Uprising, which chronicles the journey of Nela Ayesh, whose story weaves through the most vibrant nonviolent mobilization in Palestinian history, the first intifada. And finally, in 2021, Julia directed the documentary, Boycott, which is about lawsuits brought by three American citizens against state laws targeting boycotts of Israel and settlements. Uh, you can follow Julia on Twitter, assuming Twitter still exists when you're watching this podcast. Uh, it's at Julia Bacha, J-U-L-I-A-B-A-C-H-A. So Julia, with all that, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Lara, for having me. It's a pleasure. So I wanted to have you on the Occupied Thoughts podcast today in the context of an issue that is just beginning, I think, to break into mainstream consciousness, which is the growing campaign against, quote unquote, woke capitalism, and specifically the attacks on what's known as ESG. And ESG, which most people probably don't know, is shorthand for environmental, social, and governance as factors to be taken in, into account in investing as part of what's called socially responsible investing. So most people, both in the general public and even in the ESG-focused community, are probably thinking to themselves as they hear this podcast, why is an organization called the Foundation for Middle East Peace, which focuses on Palestine and Israel, why is it even interested in this? And what does any of that have to do with acclaimed documentary filmmaker, Julia Bacha? So answering that question is, in effect, the purpose of this podcast. So just to lead off, I want you to talk a little bit about the movie Boycott, because that relates directly to the conversation today. So talk to us about this movie, the, the focus of it, and, and how it came about. Boycott came about as the result of our team at Just Vision uh, witnessing the spread of anti-boycott laws across the United States with very little public scrutiny or debate. 
these laws uh, started to percolate in 2015. They accelerated in 2016 and 2017, up to the point where we are today, where there is more than 34 states that have one version or another of this bill that conditions public employment and public investments on companies or in some cases individuals in certain states uh, if they are involved in a boycott of Israel or if they simply refuse to sign a pledge stating that they uh, will not boycott Israel. Um, so this is um, a law that um, has been challenged now in several states by Americans from different political backgrounds who for different reasons decided to take their states to courts saying these bills are unconstitutional and violate their first amendments. We have been following uh, these lawsuits uh, for about four years now. And it is the personal story of three of these Americans that form the backbone of the film Boycott. At the same time, the film also does an investigation to understand how these bills have come to pass and who were the lobby groups uh, behind uh, making this very effective campaign um, uh, you know, succeed in passing a bill that violate a pretty fundamental um, right that Americans hold very dearly, the right to free speech, the right to boycott, which has been at the core of the most important social justice movements in American history. Um, and with very few people even asking questions of their legislators of why they're passing this bill and, and what is the motivation behind it and are they concerned about the constitutionality of these bills. So those are the questions that uh, the film Boycott seeks to ask. So I want to highly recommend that people watch the film. What, what Julia and her team have produced is as a historical document is, is quite extraordinary in terms of documenting who is behind these bills and how they're getting passed. I'm not going to ask her to cover every bit of that right now. Um, what I put just putting a pin in the question of who's behind them. So I want you to talk a little bit about sort of what came after this movie. It was, I think it was starting a little bit when the movie came out, which is something that you and I've talked about in the past, which is this idea that these laws um, were always ripe to be repurposed uh, for other, to go after other areas besides, you know, quashing free speech on Israel. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so for us at Just Vision, we were one concern about what these bills meant for the ability of Americans and civil society generally to advocate for Palestinian human rights, uh, because these bills are, you know, one manifestation of a broader effort to squash dissent and uh, prevent uh, civil society from uh, expressing solidarity with the Palestinian people. And there are many other tools that are used by the Israel lobby in the US and, and in Europe primarily um, for this effort, but also um, in conversations with you, Lara, and with someone like Alan Leverett, who was a plaintiff um, of uh, in, in our film. He's one of the plaintiffs whose story we profile. And uh, Alan was motivated to sue the state of Arkansas not because he's boycotting Israel, because he's not. He's He, in fact, didn't even know that such a movement to boycott Israel existed until it showed up in his contract. And the reason why he decided to sue is because the moment he read that clause, he knew that that was a Pandora's box. And that if he signed that as a journalist, he would be opening the way for the government to try to be able to tell anyone, any company, what is the political positions they need to take in exchange for taxpayer funds. 
And that is a fundamental violation of the Constitution. And Allen uh, was not willing to, uh, to accept that and decided that it was critical for journalists to stand up to that. And we wanted to uh, you know, sound the alarm bell uh, of the possibility that this bill would be used as a template to attack um, our ability to advocate on other issue areas. When we were making the film and we interviewed you, Lara, and you, you know, I think one of the most clear critical arguments in the film is made through our interview with you about that danger, um, it was still theoretical when we were doing the interview with you. Uh, and by the time we were locking picture, we were in the editing room finishing the film, the bills have become started passing. And uh, now it's been about a year uh, since the film was launched. And we have seen now, I think there's, these bills have been introduced, the new versions of the anti-boycott bills uh, targeting your ability to boycott the fossil fuels industry, to boycott the firearms industry have already been introduced in 19 states. It has been passed in, I think, five and it's very likely that come spring 2023, uh, we are going to see an avalanche of these bills in the state legislatures are coming into being, particularly because ALEC, which I'm sure is an organization we'll be talking more about today, the American Legislative Exchange Council, um, has already made it clear that they want to broaden uh, the anti-boycott uh, bills to basically try to make it impossible for any political motivated boycotts uh, to be acceptable um, if you are also seeking to do business with the state. So let, let's dig into that a little bit more because there's a, there's a few pieces here. One is uh, maybe just take a moment and explain the logic here, the, the legal logic, because in effect, what legislators are arguing is we're not in any way quashing your free speech, your right to protest. We're just saying, if you want taxpayer funding, you've got to do X, Y, Z, because you know we are responsible to the will of taxpayers. They elected us, this is the will of taxpayers. So can you talk about that a little bit? And yeah, can yeah. you also talk about ALEC um, as, as a, and maybe other actors, but particularly ALEC um, and the, the new draft legislation that they've, that, that's now been published on their website for, uh, for December, 2022 consideration? Yeah. So in terms of the, the legal argument here, right, it's that I think what they're trying to say is that there is a limit to your First Amendment when you seek a public contract. And that has been very clearly established by the Supreme Court that that's not the case. By becoming a public employee or seeking public contracts, you do not give up your First Amendment at the door. Uh, the First, First Amendment is protected. Um, and there's a very narrow scope in which governments can control speech if it is directly related to the person's job, right? So in some degree, you, if, you know, if, it's, if your speech is directly related to something of the work you do in a particular office, then the government can maybe um, tell you that you know, under certain circumstances, you cannot speak. But in, in circumstances like this, which, which you're talking about, a politically motivated boycott, whether it be of a corporation or of an entire industry or of a foreign country. Um, the, the idea that uh, the government can condition public employment or public contracts on particular political viewpoints um, is, 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 has already been established legally that it's not allowed. And that is, you know, if you think about it, that's for good reason, right? I mean, the, 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 we all are taxpayers. We all give public funds to the government. 
And so therefore we should all be equally allowed to have access to these public funds. And the government shouldn't be able to tell us that, you know, if we uh, are, if, if I'm an environmentalist, I cannot have a public job or a public contract anymore. Or if I want to stand for Palestinian human rights, sorry, those public funds are not available for you anymore, right? That, that would put us in a very slippery slope of an authoritarian regime. And you see that in authoritarian governments historically and today, where yes, you have to have, uh, there's very clear political speech that is determined by the government. Um, and, and that is a, a dangerous place for us to be because if it is, you know, the current legal challenges, they, they are specifically about contracts, but really they are about the constitutionality and protection of boycotts. And if boycotts are not considered to be protected speech, then the government can go beyond the idea of not even giving you a public contract. They can criminalize boycotts if there's no protection for it, right? So it's a really dangerous um, uh, argument that I think um, the, the sort of legislators um, and lobbyists who are arguing for that, the consequences of that are, are, are pretty severe of what they're trying to argue here. And what we see though is that there is, it's very understandable how they ended up here uh, because of who's behind it, right? And so that takes us to ALEC. So ALEC is the American Legislative Exchange Council. And generally any, the people who know ALEC uh, by and large associated with sort of a pro-corporate um, lobbying outfit focused at the state level. And the, the basic idea as we've seen it, you know, uh, operate has been, how do we make it easy for businesses to work across the country and across state lines without having at each point of the way to deal with different, um, uh, you know, environmental protections and uh, protection of the labor force. And so you have to modify everything state by state. How do we make it really easy for corporations to work across um, states uh, without having to deal with unions, without having to deal with um, environmental protections? And so they push these bills. They are cookie cutter bills. Uh, you just need to put the name of your state in it. Uh, they are generally agreed upon in these you know, annual and biannual meetings that are closed doors where corporate leaders come together with uh, state legislators. The vast majority of the ones uh, who come, uh, the elected officials are Republicans um, and they vote on these bills. And uh, the corporate leaders have the same, uh, the vote of a corporate leader is valued the same as a legislator. So they vote, if the bill passed, then it becomes a model bill and the legislators are encouraged to take them back home uh, and pass them. What people generally don't know is that ALEC actually started as an evangelical organization. So ALEC was founded in the early 1970s. Uh, one of the co-founders was Paul Weyrich, who was a conservative evangelical leader who founded many conservative organizations in the 70s as part of the movement at the time to sort of counter the progressive change that was beginning to happen in the second half of the 20th century. And there was obviously, you know, women's movement was beginning to take place. There was desegregation, Brown versus Board of Education in 1953. Then in 1971, you know, the, the attempt that the conservatives had done to just establish Christian schools was now in grave threat because the Supreme Court said, uh, no, you cannot be tax exempt. You cannot be a tax exempt Christian organization unless you have um, 
anti-discrimination policy. And because that was their attempt to sort of run away from the segregated public schools was to establish the segregated Christian schools. And that moment was really a turning point. And Alec very much comes at that moment where the evangelical movement wants to push against this progressive social change. They find quickly, I think within like two decades that they can't financially be sustainable with only the conservative evangelical philosophy. And so they align themselves with corporate interests, which make the whole operation financially viable. But this evangelical conservative um, strain uh, is very much uh, part of um, the foundation. And still we see that today. Uh, and the uh, anti-boycott bill vis-a-vis -vis Israel, the one basically trying to protect Israel from um, Americans advocating for Palestinian human rights, comes through that uh, origin uh, story of Alec. So, so that's really helpful. I'm going to put in the notes that go with this podcast a link to the new Alec bill, which was published, I think, in the past couple of weeks. So what you, you basically sketched out, or we've discussed here, is so far is the anti-boycott bills, which target boycotts of Israel. And by the way, they also target boycotts of settlements, the occupied territories. They treat those as one and the same, pretty much all of this legislation. Um, and, and the evolution and the repurposing of those bills to go after, so far as you said, the guns and ammunition industry and fossil fuel industry. I would add that we've also seen two bills um, introducing, it's Minnesota and Idaho, that take that same template and add in a whole long list of other industries. And that's basically the new model, um, the model ALEC bill, which was just released. And to be very clear, the model, the new model ALEC bill is explicitly framed as an anti-ESG bill. So you can see that arc. So the first part of answering the question, why are we talking about anti-ESG legislation when we're people who focus on the Middle East is because there's a direct line, this arc between the anti-boycott bills trying to protect Israel and the anti-ESG bills. So that's one line. The second part that I want to talk about is, or the second piece of this, again, for answering the question, why are we talking about this? I want to ask you to talk a little bit or respond to what happened with the Morningstar case. And just as background for people who are listening who aren't deeply familiar with this, Morningstar is in some ways, I think you'd call it like the beacon of the ESG organizations. It is seen as the courageous organization, the leader, the, it, it really is kind of the role model in the sector. And Morningstar in the past year and a half or so has become the target of intense attacks led by Jewish American organizations and pro-Israel organizations who effectively have, have argued that Morningstar and an organization that does ESG analysis that it acquired called Sustainalytics are anti-Israel and anti-Semitic and engaging in BDS because Israeli companies were being caught up in their the S screen, that social, which is a human rights screen. And they said if you're if you're if you're basically calling out Israel for human rights abuses in the occupied territories, that's BDS. And it was a massive campaign. In the initial phases, Morningstar, in its attempt to defend itself, brought in a major law firm, which did a review and basically found that they were doing nothing wrong, but suggested some ways to maybe be better. Um, and, and Morningstar effectively at that point dumped their major human rights report for, I guess, fear of having, having Israel show up on it. Um, but their actions there to try to even be accountable and you know, extra accountable were seen as a mission of guilt in the sector. And it, it 
all of the forces that were attacking them and adding to this, the more broad anti-ESG forces that are not Israel focused necessarily double down. And then a couple of weeks ago, they announced their new policy, which is quite, um, quite breathtaking. So the major ESG organization in the sector basically announced a policy vis-a-vis -vis Israel where it is dumping international law. It is rejecting anything that touches anything from any UN agency or, or organization. And it's rejecting research and data from the organization on the ground, the Palestinian organization in Israel, that is the only organization on the ground that actually documents and, and researches the intersection between investments, business, and violations of Palestinian rights. Um, which really, basically, they've carved out an explicit ESG exception for Israel itself, and they have given a template for politicizing ESG on any issue and, and, and demeaning the or, or challenging the entire sector. So this is, again, talking about why we're talking about ESG here. This is the, the, the case study. So can you talk about, from your perspective, having studied the, the evolution of anti-BDS laws, the implications of this case? You know, what can people learn from it? And, and, and also, to the extent that you can draw some conclusions on what maybe people in the ESG sector are doing wrong, what, what they're not understanding about um, how you defend how you defend what you're doing with these kinds of attacks. I I think it's it's really um, terrifying to see what just happened and the idea that you know you can you can hear people already thinking and you know similar to how I think you know Laura you I believe you faced similar things at the time when you were trying to sound the alarm bell that you were alarmists right like that this is that the the anti-boycott bills at the time were going to be used to attack this whole other slew of of but what there's no evidence of this why it's going to happen and then of course you know the the first bill that passes which is the one you know preventing you from being able to boycott the fossil fuels industry the you know, lobbyists who pushed it very explicitly said that he was inspired uh, to do that because of the um, anti-BDS bill. And there is no question that uh, all of the different industries are looking at what's happening with Morningstar and seeing a perfect path to protect their own interests. Because the reality of, of all of these things legally is that either something is legal or something is not legal, right? So either there isn't this idea that, oh, the human rights of Palestinians are not, um, are, are, are to be put here separately, and then everything else is okay to come in that doesn't exist, right? This isn't a legal framework um, that um, that is something that is going to, you know, unlikely to pass legal muster unless something, you know, very profoundly um, intense happens in the entire American legal system, which who knows could happen but i think there is the the forces will be there very quickly to look at morning star as um a great model to follow uh to basically prevent uh, all of the progress that has been made in, in decades now where environmental activists have been advocating for companies to start putting screens you know that has been so much the model uh that has been pretty successful uh in companies even blackrock you know, have sort of started looking at these things. And, and we're going to see uh, the, the possibility that all of this is going to, uh, you know, the, whatever two decades of work will go down pretty quickly in the next year. Um, and there is, I think, a, a somewhat of a reluctance uh, sometimes in 
you know, in activist circles, environmental circles, or, you know, people fighting for gun safety, uh, or, you know, whatever other uh, issue area that, um, that people care about, that they are uh, concerned that if they start talking about what happened to the anti-BDS bill or what happened now to Morningstar, that that is going to, that's a toxic conversation and that's going to hurt them. And that is, I think, you know, a somewhat understandable initial reaction uh, based on, yes, how much of a, of a cost it's often uh, incurred to stand up for Palestinian human rights in America. Um, but I think it is, um, I think it's not understanding the scope of um, the effort here that is being done by groups like ALEC um, and other corporate um, interests to understand how this opening now uh, will be um, abused pretty severely. And if there isn't an incorporation of this idea that, um, you know, every every human right, you know, needs to be respected, that if we're gonna stand up for human rights, we have to stand up for human rights equally. Um, I, I don't know that there is a way of of protecting anybody's rights if if, if you're not willing to to have that uh, universal approach. Yeah, no, I think that's that's beautifully said. I, I was on a panel recently on a, on a on a related topic, and one of the other speakers said something you know very demeaning about um, people like me because we're warning about slippery slopes and arguing that that was sort of you know a very it was lazy, intellectually lazy. You know, we should be strong enough, and I'm like. It is, it, it was just surreal because literally what he was calling, like, you know, you say slippery slope is like, we're already there. This isn't, you know, just a, if we'd had this conversation five years ago, you could have said, well, it's a warning. It'll never happen. I can say, I'm pretty sure it will. We're already there. Um, so the slip, the, the sort of, you know, dismissing, dismissing the idea that this will have broader implications um, is, is uh, it's, it's a factual um, and, and, and very worrying. I, I want to ask you a little bit about, I mean, there's so many directions I want to go and I don't want to keep you too long. We're trying we try to keep these podcasts a little bit shorter so people can just process a lot of information. The, going back to boycott the movie for a minute. So one of the cases, and you mentioned Alan Leverett. So one of the cases, Alan's case, actually now has been appealed to the Supreme Court. Can you offer your thoughts? And I know that you and I talked about this previously because I tend to be very, um, someone's called me like gloomy. I mean, I, I'm not, I don't think I'm pessimistic. I think I'm a realist, but I think as a realist, I tend to, you know, not necessarily, you know, be, see the, the positive outcomes as, as, pop, as probable. Um, I want you to talk about this case that's going to the Supreme Court and what lessons can be learned, both positive and negative, from the efforts to use courts to challenge these these this anti anti free speech trend, and maybe extrapolate from that a little bit what are the most what needs to be done for people who are just coming to as an anti ESG issue, who basically say, listen, I don't I don't give a crap about Israel Palestine, and I'm really unhappy that you're telling me I need to give a crap about Israel Palestine. Which, to be clear. That, that is the point, because if yeah, I've always said, you may not care about Israel-Palestine, but it cares about you and it's coming for your rights. Um, so maybe help extrapolate from the experience of people fighting the anti-BDS laws, what are, what are the better ways or what is available now before it's too late to mobilize and engage on the anti-ESG side of things? 
the first thing to say is that the, the Supreme Court um, decision on Alan Leverett's case, if the Supreme Court decides to take it up, right? So in terms of where we are right now is um, the ACLU about a month ago petitioned the Supreme Court to hear Alan Leverett's case. And specifically, they would like the Supreme Court to overturn the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals decision that ruled that the Arkansas anti-boycott law is constitutional. Um, and that, I, just to interrupt, yeah. to be clear, for people listening, the, the case that's going to be, if they decide to take it in the Supreme Court, isn't merely deciding whether Alan Leverett, as a person in Arkansas, has a right to boycott as a matter of free speech. They're basically being asked to decide, in general, whether the act of engaging in an economic boycott is free speech, right? So this is, again, when I say that you know, Israel-Palestine cares about you and is coming for your rights. The decisions that are being made in courts vis-a-vis -vis these laws have implications for all boycotts, not just for Israel-Palestine related boycotts. Sorry. Yeah, no, and I think I think what you're saying is is that is the reflection of a reality that you know Israel-Palestine is theoretically a foreign policy issue, but in in the U.S. it's a domestic issue uh, and has always been, and it's going to continue to be. I mean, now this is not only a national issue; it's at the state level, right? Like when you look at how these bills are being passed, um, because it's harder to pass these bills at the federal level because there's more attention being paid. So uh, strategically, um, the the lobby went for. Uh, the state um, legislatures. And what, what I think one of the things that was really striking to follow is obviously this is a case that has made its way through the courts uh, in the post-Trump era, which was a time when Trump actually stacked the courts around the country at all level, the district level, at the circuit court level, the Supreme Court level, with extremely conservative judges. And we saw that play out, right? Like some uh, a court like the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is already traditionally a more conservative court, uh, has now as one of its judges, uh, a Judge Cobes, who uh, actually came straight from being an advisor uh, to uh, a federal um, senator who actually was a co-sponsor uh, of the federal anti-boycott bill. And so he legally was already involved in this bill and then is being asked now to decide if it's constitutional or not. He refuses to, to actually withdraw himself um, and, uh, and becomes the writer of the decision um, that basically uh, is it's a very stark um, uh, uh, sort of overturning, they can't overturn, but challenge to the NAACP versus Claiborne Supreme Court decision um, from 1985 that said very clearly that, um, you know, based on the history of, of the civil rights movement um, in America, one of the cases there ended up in the Supreme Court and they said boycotts are protected. Um, and now this is under threat, right? So a civil rights era um, ruling is now uh, being put, um, uh, you know, are, is being threatened by the effort of um, the Israel lobby to, to protect itself from um, accountability. And this is gonna have tremendous consequences for everybody else. And so how does this now affect other issue areas? You know, if the right to boycott is not constitutionally protected, uh, then efforts by other social movements in the future could be not only penalized, but could be criminalized. Uh, and so you really lose, uh, you know, the form of, of, uh, 
of civic engagement that was actually at the core of uh, how the United States started its revolution against England, right? Which is the boycott of tea. So it's a really goes really deep the sort of implications of this, um, and um, and so I I hope that people will very much pay attention to this moment if the Supreme Court takes it up. I think it's it's you know critical for all social justice movements to be uh, you know to really mobilize around it because the consequences would be tremendous. Yeah, and I'll just add, I mean, we and going back to the why we're talking about this today, one of the things that was interesting watching the movement, and you cover this actually in the movie quite well, the passage of these anti-BDS laws in states is they were framed as the pro-Israel bills and progressive Democrats, this was this was not partisan. There's a lot of, I think, efforts or, or maybe it's an assumption that this stuff is partisan. Um, and, and the anti-boycott bills were not partisan. They were bipartisan. They had strong support from legacy um, Jewish American organizations that are probably nonpartisan or bipartisan. And they got bipartisan support from legislatures, including by legislators who maybe had never read them and were in any way cognizant of the implications or, or maybe just decided, like I've heard from people in Washington, I don't care, I'm gonna vote for it anyway, this is the thing for Israel. And it's, a, it's sort of a sense of, if we, have, if we have to curb boycotts in general to save Israel from boycotts, I'm okay with that. And I think that's really an important piece to understand as we think about what's happening with anti-ESG legislation. Because again, I think there is an instinct to say, oh, this is ALEC, it's partisan, it's gonna, you know, it, there'll be partisan pushback. And that probably is true in some cases. But at the same time, as soon as you inject Israel into it, it stopped being partisan. And we've seen this in New York already. Um, as soon as you make this about, you know, Morningstar and having ESG screens that might capture a couple of Israel companies, suddenly it becomes something where, oh, no, no, we can all be against ESG because ESG is just cover for, for anti-Israel pro-BDS stuff. Um, so that's where it leaves it. I will, I will add to the notes from this uh, webinar a few things if people wanna look for them. Um, I will say, so Just Vision has a fabulous, um, very beautifully designed in, uh, interactive uh, database of legislation. I have a far less beautiful uh, table of legislation, which also includes, I have a separate table just looking at the metastasizing legislation, where it's not looking just at the BDS bills, but specifically um, with ESG. And I've got a, a database of articles which go back as far as 2016. And I think it's it's worth noting that the there's a report from an Israeli organization called Reut, I believe from 2016, which literally and explicitly makes the case that, that socially responsible investing is a threat to Israel and, and has to be somehow, um, that, that, has, that challenge has to be met. Um, so as far back as 2016, they were watching this. Uh, Julia, do you have any last thoughts you want to give for people who are coming to this issue and, and trying, to, trying to figure out what it means to defend the things they care about most while not desperately hoping it's not gonna get hijacked by um, Palestine-Israel issues? You know, I think, I don't know how that answers your, your specific question, but one thing that I came across recently uh, that I didn't know about was how much Alec was part of the effort uh, to stop the, you know, international movement to end apartheid in South Africa as well. Uh, and so I think that that was just a moment of like, okay, this is, they have been at it for a long time, right? These interests are, um, are very connected. And I think the idea that, um, you know, there are there are there are so many um, 
you know, well-intentioned, um, you know, organizations and organizers who want to protect their niche against getting into the, you know, the messiness of this conversation. Um, but the messiness of this conversation is after all your good intentions. And so I don't think we're going to, I think we're going to have to be courageous in this moment if we are um, to, um, to, to preserve our ability, you know, to fight for the things we care about. And, and I, and I think in that process, we are hopefully likely to actually build movements towards social justice that, that, that is actually more principled. Um, and that, that does actually include, that is more inclusive, that does recognize um, that, you know, our futures are interconnected and that we can't be siloing specific groups or specific issue areas uh, because they are inconvenient. Thanks. And that actually reminds me of one last non, non-optimistic non point that I did want to add, which is for folks who haven't been paying attention, the Anti-Defamation League, um, like the week before last, announced that they have acquired the organization, which in theory is the organization that engages and supports ESG from the Jewish organizational perspective called JLENS. Um, and, and the Anti-Defamation League statements around that acquisition make clear that fighting the targeting of Israel as part of ESG is a priority. It's seen as the new priority area for fighting anti, quote unquote, anti-Semitism. I put it in quotes because I don't think that's actual anti-Semitism, but uh, defending Israel and fighting, quote unquote, anti-Semitism by um, what is uh, one of the most powerful and, and largest, uh, I think it frames itself as social justice organizations from the Jewish communal world um, in the country. So that is certainly going to add to the challenge going forward. Um, we're going to have more conversations about this. Julia, we're going to end here. Um, I'm going to ask you, uh, I'm going to warn you now that I'm going to ask you to come back uh, probably for maybe a webinar to have a broader discussion on this, but I'm so grateful for your time today. Thank you. Um, for thank you our for audience. Sorry, go ahead. Just said thank you for having me. Yeah. Be careful because when I ask you back 10 more times, you're going to be like, no, too much work. Um, I've got real things to do. Uh, for our audience, thank you for listening and for watching. And uh, remi reminder, assuming Twitter still exists in the future, you can follow Julia there at Julia Basha. That's at J-U-L-I-A-B-A-C-H-A. -A -A. Check this uh, podcast online on our website for the notes, which will include a whole wealth of resources on this topic. And finally, I want to remind people, subscribe to the Occupied Thoughts podcast. You can do so on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. That way you won't miss any of the great content we produce almost every week. And you can also find this podcast and the video of it um, at our website, www.fmep.org. And with that, we're going to end it here. I'm Laura Friedman, President of the Foundation for Peace, for Middle East Peace. Thank you, Julia Basha of Just Vision. And signing off now until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts. <laughs>